You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. Our 10th lecture for the International Catholic University on the subject of logic is simply entitled Dialectic. Now in our last lecture we finished our discussion of the judging part of logic. Judgment always has certitude and the certitude of judgment can either come from the form of reasoning alone, that is the syllogism simply, or also from the matter of reasoning, the demonstrative syllogism. But we also noted in our discussion of demonstration that before we can judge that a theory is true, we also need to discover it. Therefore, before we can use the judging part of logic, we need to use a part of logic that discovers. Aristotle calls the chief part of discovering logic dialectic, and he discusses it in a book called The Topics. So in today's lecture, we're going to examine Aristotle's topics. I want to make sure that our discussion of logic is useful for your intellectual life. The first thing we're going to examine in dialectic is not its nature or definition, but rather its utility. Aristotle explains the usefulness of dialectic as follows. We must say how many and for what purposes this treatise is useful. There are three, intellectual training, casual encounters, and the philosophical sciences. Now, I think Aristotle's thinking first of something like this. Suppose I want to sharpen somebody's mind. I want him to get him thinking more vigorously, more precisely. What do I get him involved with? I might recommend that he gets involved in a debating society. Involvement in debate sharpens the mind. And Aristotle thinks that the study of dialectic is useful for that kind of intellectual training. Now, the second use he gives is the use in casual discussions. Suppose I want to discuss a philosophical question with somebody who hasn't really studied very much philosophy. Now, I can't start giving that person philosophical demonstrations because he's not going to be able to follow them. I'm going to need some other kind of logical tool in order to have a discussion about philosophy with the non-philosopher. Aristotle says dialectic is that kind of tool. Now, thirdly, in the philosophical sciences, I can use dialectic in two ways. First, when I'm trying to get to some conclusion in a philosophical science, it's often helpful to look at both sides of an issue. For example, if I'm trying to demonstrate that God exists, I also want to look at the arguments which seem to say that God does not exist. And Aristotle says dialectic is useful for that kind of procedure. Secondly, I sometimes want to talk about, discuss, argue about the first principles of a science. Now, we saw that in our last lecture that every demonstration reduces back to some first self-evident principles. And those principles are not themselves demonstrated. Therefore, we can't use a demonstrative syllogism to discuss the first principles. 
What do we use instead? We can use a dialectical syllogism. The dialectical syllogism, or the process of dialectic, can help us to discuss, to be clear about these first principles. Now, we ultimately derive those first principles, of course, from sense experience, but sometimes we need to go through a process in order to make the transition from sense experience to a real intellectual understanding of those first principles. Dialectic can help us do that. Now, dialectic has these three basic uses, but what's common to all these uses gives us an important property of dialectic. Let's point to this property first. Every use of dialectic gives you the power to discuss anything. When we're training someone's intellect, we're not just training it for one particular subject, we're training the whole intellect to be sharper. And while demonstration, in contrast to dialectic, doesn't give us a power to discuss anything, because the syllogisms of a demonstration apply just to one science. For example, I might have the ability to give a demonstrative syllogism in geometry and have no ability whatsoever to give a demonstration in theology. The power of demonstration is split up. It applies to just one subject at a time. But I can have a dialectical discussion about anything. Now, the second property of dialectic is that in all of these uses of dialectic, we see the notion of conflict or combat. When I debate for the sake of training my mind, I'm arguing with an opponent about the truth of something. When I'm having a casual conversation about a philosophical matter with a non-philosopher, it's because the non-philosopher is often taking up a position contrary to the philosophical one. And when I'm looking at the pros and cons of a particular philosophical question, once again, there's combat. One side argues for, the other against. Thus, all of the uses of dialectic indicate these two things. Dialectic is a power to discuss anything. And dialectic is a power of entering into disputes. And since dialectic is part of the discovering part of logic, what dispute does for us is to prepare us for a further, more perfect knowledge of the subject under discussion, if such a knowledge is possible. So that's the general nature of dialectic. Power of disputing about anything that belongs to the discovering part of logic. Now that we've talked about the general use of dialectic, we want to talk about the tools that are used in dialectic. And there are two, the dialectical syllogism and induction. First, we want to talk about the dialectical syllogism. Now, the dialectical syllogism, like all syllogisms, has certainty from its form. If the premises are true, then the conclusion has to be true. But the difference between the dialectical syllogism and the demonstrative one is that the dialectical one does not have certainty from its matter. We can state this more precisely by giving a definition of the dialectical syllogism that's parallel to the definition we gave of demonstration. Demonstration was a syllogism that produces scientific knowledge. 
Dialectic we can define as a syllogism that produces opinion. And just as we had to define what scientific knowledge was before, so now we have to define exactly what opinion is. First, we can contrast opinion with science. We already saw that science is reasoned out certain knowledge. When my intellect possesses certain knowledge about something, it makes a complete and necessary assent to that truth. An assent so complete and so necessary that there's no fear of error. When I really understand the demonstration in geometry about the angles of a triangle adding up to 180 degrees, my intellect by its own power assents completely to that truth without any fear whatsoever of its turning out to be false. Clearly this is not the case with opinion. With opinion I have a fear that the opposite of what I hold could turn out to be true. And that's evident because I sometimes change my opinion. I don't change my complete, absolute, certain, reasoned out knowledge, but I do change my opinion. Thus, opinion lacks that hallmark of complete assent, which belongs to science. But opinion also differs from doubt. My mind is in a state of doubt when it makes no assent at all to either side of an issue. When I'm in a state of opinion, my mind does assent to one side. So we might expand our definition of the dialectical syllogism in this way. The dialectical syllogism is a syllogism which produces an assent to one side of an issue with a fear that the other might be true. Now, we said before that through its form, a syllogism always has some kind of certainty. But clearly, opinion is not absolutely certain like reasoned out knowledge. Therefore, it must be the case because the product of the dialectical syllogism is not completely certain, the materials of it, the premises that it uses, are also not completely certain. So we can describe the premises of a dialectical syllogism in a way parallel to how we described the premises of demonstration. Demonstration's premises are true, first and immediate, prior to and better known than and cause of the conclusion. The dialectical syllogism will not start from premises that are true, immediate, and first. Rather, it will start from premises that are merely probably true, premises that lack some certitude. We could put it another way. Dialectic starts from opinion, and from those opinions produces further opinions. Now, that's all we want to say about the dialectical syllogism. Next thing we want to talk about is the second main tool of dialectic tool which is called induction. Induction is not a syllogism. It's something else. It is a tool, however, of discursive reasoning. Aristotle discusses induction in the twelfth chapter of the Topics, and he writes the following. We must distinguish how many species there are of dialectical arguments. There is on the one hand induction, and on the other, syllogism. Now what syllogism is, has been said before. Induction, however, is a passage from individuals 
to universals. For example, the argument that supposing the skilled pilot is the most effective, and likewise the skilled charioteer, then in general the skilled man is best at his particular task. Now what has Aristotle done? He's given us both a definition and an example of induction. Let's go over both of those. First, talking about the difference between induction and syllogism, then talking about the relation between induction and demonstration. Now first, what's essential to induction is that it is a passage, a reasoning process that goes from individual cases to a universal case. Now, let's think about what's necessary to go from individual cases to a universal case. First, since the statements about the individuals lead to statements about universals, all the statements about the individuals must have the same predicate. For example, if I took two statements, Fido barks and Rover has four legs, I couldn't get an induction out of those two statements because they don't have the same predicate. Second, there must be something that's common to all of the individuals so that we can gather them together into one universal subject. That is, the individuals have to have a common nature that can be related to that common predicate. Now, we can see this is the case in Aristotle's example. All of the particular statements have a common predicate, the words most effective. All of the subjects, all the individuals, the skilled pilot and the skilled charioteer, have a common nature, the skilled man. Thus, the induction concludes by predicating the common predicate universally of the common subject. That is, it concludes every skilled man is most effective. We can take an even more ordinary example. I see Fido bark, I see Spot bark, I see Rover bark. All three have a common predicate, barking. Then there's a common nature to all three subjects. They're all dogs. From these three cases, I then conclude but all dogs bark. That's how an induction works. It goes from the individual or the particular case to the universal case. But the second example should make clear to us an important difference between the syllogism and the induction. With the syllogism we saw that if the premises are true, then by virtue of the form of the syllogism, the conclusion must also be true. With an induction, even if all the premises are true, it's still possible, not probable, but possible, that the conclusion is false. The conclusion is not necessarily true just by the form of the induction. And in fact, our example of all dogs bark illustrates this. It's true that most dogs bark, but there are some varieties of dogs that are not able to bark. The conclusion to our second induction turns out, strictly speaking, to be false. 
Therefore, in virtue of its form alone, the induction concludes only with probability. That's why Aristotle talks about it primarily in the book Topics. Now, although induction does not achieve certainty through its form, sometimes it arrives at an absolutely certain conclusion because of its matter. In fact, the process by which we come to these first principles of demonstration is a process of induction. Now recall the example we talked about at the end of our last lecture. The doctor notices when he gives a certain herb to Socrates that Socrates is cured of his fever. The same is true with Plato and the same is true with Aristotle. He then goes to the following principle. This kind of herb always cures fever. Well, what kind of process is that? Quite obviously, it's a process of induction. What Aristotle was teaching at the end of the posterior analytics was that the process of induction was the way to the first principles of demonstration. But we also know that the first principles of demonstration are not merely probable, they're absolutely certain. Otherwise, they could not yield an absolutely certain conclusion. So we have to ask ourselves, how can it be that an induction, which by its form can only yield probability, can somehow yield, in some cases, an absolutely certain conclusion? We can say this, while by its form induction can only give us probability, because of a certain matter, because we take the right kind of matter, the right kind of premises, examples for the induction, we can sometimes achieve absolute certainty. An example of this is how children come to know. Now, you can give a child a certain toy that has various geometrical shaped pieces and another part of it has holes for those various geometrical shapes. For example, it has a hole for a triangle, a hole for a circle, and a hole for a square. The triangle will only fit in the triangular hole. The square will only fit in the square hole. The circle will only fit in the circular hole. Now, after fooling with this toy for a while, the child realizes the matching nature of the triangular hole and the triangular piece. He has a vague idea of what a triangle is. But he has not yet formulated a definition of the triangle. Now suppose you then take the child aside and you take various examples of triangles and you have him count the number of sides. He says to himself, this triangle has three sides. That triangle has three sides. This other triangle has three sides. The child will soon make the induction, make the jump to every triangle has three sides. But when he makes that jump to every triangle has three sides, He's not only making an induction, rather through the process of induction, he's coming to see more deeply into the nature of the triangle. He's come to see that having three sides is part of what it is to be a triangle. Therefore, if I have the right matter, the individuals which have a common nature, and I assign a common predicate which turns out to be part of what it is to have that common nature, which turns out 
to be part of the very definition of the subject, we can see, even though that the form of induction is uncertain, that through that process, we come to an intellectual insight. We can see, if we have the right matter, that induction will yield a necessary conclusion. It will give us absolutely certain knowledge. This is how we come to our knowledge of the first principles of all demonstration. So, induction is probable according to its form, but if I use the right matter, it is the prelude to an intellectual insight which gives us absolute certainty about its conclusion. When a proposition has for its predicate something which belongs to the very notion, the very definition of the subject, this is what St. Thomas means when he says a proposition is self-evident. We can learn self-evident propositions through the process of induction. Let's sum it up this way. Induction is a tool that primarily belongs to the process of dialectic. It's a tool by which the intellect goes from an understanding of many individual statements to an understanding of a universal statement. Unlike the syllogism, its conclusion by the form alone is not necessarily true. However, the induction can be the occasion of someone having the intellectual insight into a proposition that in itself is self-evidently true. And thus an induction can give us a statement which is a first principle in a demonstrative science. Now, we've seen that dialectic is a power of intellectual combat. And its primary tools are the dialectical syllogism and the induction. Now, dialectic is a fair combat. There are no underhanded methods, no hidden tricks. But there is a kind of intellectual combat which is unfair, in which underhanded tactics are used, in which hidden tricks are performed. The power to carry on this kind of unfair intellectual combat is called sophistry. Now, Aristotle talks about it in his book, The Sophistical Refutations, and its primary tool is called the fallacy. In our next lecture, we're going to look at Aristotle's sophistical refutations, the power of sophistry, and the kinds of fallacies. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.